Good morning again, brethren. A joy it is for me to be with you as we open up God's Word. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 2. And we have been in the book of James for a few weeks now, and we have been looking at how James is calling us as believers to live out our faith. It's not just about proclamation that you have faith, that you say you believe, but he wants to see your life as Christians, he wants to see you live that faith out. And so he's been challenging us. He's challenging us to respond properly in trials, to understand that when we do fail in trials, we give in a temptation, it doesn't come from a good God, but comes from our own sinful hearts. He's challenged us to, to respond properly to the Word of God, to, to hear, to obey, and even be genuine doers and not be focused on religious activity alone. And then we come to this new section, and this new section in verses chapter, or sorry, verses 1 through 13 of chapter 2, we deal with the sin of partiality or the sin of favoritism. And with this, James is, is dealing with a topic that is common in the world and even common in churches. And he wants to confront this. And, and now last week we dealt with the principle. The principle is that if, if you're holding your faith with an attitude of first personal favoritism, you have become an evil judge. You're making dis- evil distinctions. Right? You're showing favoritism that, that Christ, our glorious Lord, doesn't make. And so today we're going to be dealing with the rest of the chapter, well, part of the chapter. We won't be able to finish through verse 13 today. Uh, so we're going, to, we're going to deal with and continue to deal with favoritism. And I've titled the next two uh, sermons, next two messages, what's the big deal about favoritism? Because you could imagine these believers as they're, they're hearing the Word of God read and James starts talking about favoritism, you can imagine them saying, well, we don't show partiality. What's the big deal? It, it's common and their whole societal structure was built on favoritism from the emperor on down. What's the big deal? Well, he confronts these believers with the fact that God considers it a big deal. Well, in 1935, the great American baseball player, Babe Ruth, was playing his last season, and he came across another Babe, Babe Pinelli, a first-year umpire. And after calling Babe Ruth out after three unsuccessful swings of his bat, the legend, Babe, turned around to the rookie umpire and remarked, there's 40,000 people in this park that know that that was a bad call. And now most players would maybe have been thrown out of the game after smarting off to the umpire, but Pinelli, in respect of who Babe Ruth was, he, he looked at him and he responded, perhaps, but mine is the only opinion that counts. And see, believers, when it comes to favoritism and how we treat others, ultimately God's opinion is the only one that counts. Brethren, the rich and famous of this world are are mostly what people want to be like. They're celebrated. They're elevated because of their their wealth, their popularity, their their ability, their intellect. You see it on the news. You see it on the internet, Twitter, everywhere. In fact, there's people that are famous for just being famous. 
But regardless of what the world thinks, it's God's opinion that really matters when He looks at people. And so when you look at others and you talk with others, do you look at them the way God looks at them? As 1 Corinthians 2 says, you have been given the mind of Christ. Do you see others and look at them as the way God looks at them? Well, the sad thing for most churches is there's favoritism even in the church. It's not just a a worldly thing that, that we see out in the world and see unbelievers do, but believers are guilty. People that dress better, maybe they wear ties to church, maybe they're better educated, they're, they're wealthier, they, have, they end up getting more status inside the church. They get more attention. And sadly, even if they sin, they tend to have that sin overlooked because people are afraid that they'll leave the church because they're wealthy and sophisticated and then less well-off believers. They're often given a pass, sadly. Well, this kind of favoritism is sin. It's sin in God's eyes. And in Deuteronomy 10, chapter 17, or excuse me, 10, 17 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. And as we noted last time, God is not impartial in his judgments or impartial with you in his salvation. Everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. He is good, and His grace is good, and His judgments are good. He doesn't care about externals. He treats people based on the condition of their souls. He doesn't care about your ethnicity, where you went to school, how much money you have, your social status, your athletic ability, all of that stuff. What He really cares about is the position of your heart. And we should care about those things as well. And when you show partiality... You ceased, and you ceased to look like Jesus Christ. But today we're going to answer the question, well, why favoritism is a big deal? Now, we won't be able to finish this whole section to verse 13. We'll have to finish next week. But today we're going to look specifically at verses 5 through 7, and we're going to see that favoritism is inconsistent with God's choice, and we're going to see that favoritism is inconsistent with your new name. So let's go ahead and look at the text. We'll start at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called. So James begins this section in, in verse 5, it's a, it's a new paragraph, and he says, he says, listen, my beloved brethren, listen, hear this, it's emphatic. He wants their full attention, right? Because he wants them to understand that they are failing at the principle of favoritism, that they are guilty of showing favoritism. And so he says, listen up, and he's aiming this at their hearts. And look, he's, and you see his pastoral heart when he says, listen, my beloved brethren, because he cares about them. He looks at them as, as uh, out of love. He wants to help them to, to walk consistent in their faith in Jesus Christ. He loves them. And he says, brethren, he, he's talking to believers here. So he makes it emphatic. Listen, brethren, listen up. Pay attention to what I'm going to say. And he says, do not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God? 
Well, before we deal with the poor, I'd like to mention the rich very quickly. Because sometimes we think about believers or we think about people that have wealth, and we need to have a proper understanding because there are rich believers. Not every believer is poor. He's already mentioned rich believers once over in chapter 1 when he deals with the example of trials in regards to wealth in verses 9 through 11. So there are wealthy believers from time to time. There's Nicodemus, there was Joseph of Arimathea, there was Zacchaeus the tax collector. So there are believers that come to Jesus Christ that are wealthy. In fact, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 verse 17, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. But generally speaking, and this is James's point, generally speaking, most churches are made up of poorer people, poorer in the eyes of the world, right? because it's, it's hard for the rich. It's hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And that's one thing when you look at, look at Luke, Luke chapter 18, the rich young ruler. I'd like to read this to you because it will come into play later on. So if you want to turn with me in Luke chapter 18, verses 18. And a ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it, easier, or excuse me, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And so when you have the rich young ruler, he, he comes to Jesus and says, Well, how can I have eternal life? How can I join the kingdom? How can I be saved? And Jesus says, all right, well, sell everything you have. Because he knew that the, the, the main commandment this guy is guilty of breaking is the first one. You should have no other gods before me. The, the wealth in this man's life was his, was his idol, was his God. And so for the rich, it's hard for a rich man. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. And this is supposed to be impossible. And that's the thing about wealth is most wealthy people tend to trust their, their wealth and their, and their position for their security. But wealth itself, and this is the thing that Jesus was trying to confront with the Israelites, wealth itself does not make one blessed or righteous. For the Israelites believed if you were wealthy, then God had blessed you. If you were poor, you were cursed. And that was a wrong way of looking at it. And he's trying to correct that. Wealth and status doesn't mean you're blessed or righteous. Does it guarantee you a position in the kingdom? That's what Jesus is saying in Luke 18. Well, wealth is, is, is hard. The wealthy find their trust and security in what they have. Revelation 3, verses 16 and 17, and speaking about the church of Laodicea, Jesus says, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, and you have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. 
And see, that's the rich of this world. The rich, they, they live with a, with a security and a self-righteous. And they don't know that they're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The rich don't see that they need anything. But instead, the poor do. Those that are well, uh, less well-off, they understand what need is. They understand what it means to, to have to pray and ask God for help. And that's why you end up having more churches made up of more poor people. They're less materially well-off in the, in, the, in the eyes of the world. And now when, when James says here, he says, God has chosen the poor, you need to understand the Jewish context. If you became a Christian, there was, there was hostile society all around you. Right? Your business may be boycotted. You may have, if you're a, a lady or a, a daughter or a woman, a wife, you've been kicked out of your home because of your faith. Right? People would, would ostracize you. And so for a rejection of society because of Christ, it would create you a, a poor context in your life. You would be, naturally be less well off. In fact, when Paul was talking to the apostles, when he came to Jerusalem and he presented his gospel in Galatians, they actually said, hey, remember the poor in Jerusalem. And Paul actually took up a collection, and you can, you can read about this collection in Romans 15, how Paul went around the different Gentile churches and, and took up a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. And so when you think about the poor, James says that God has chosen the poor of this world. He's chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. So when it comes to the poor, God loves the poor. God loves those who are less well-off, those who are in low regard. And the fact that many poor people or many believers are poor is, is evidence of that. It's, it shows that, that God chooses people that the world would not. Think about the game of dodgeball. I don't know if they have dodgeball in Australia, but we used to play dodgeball when I was a kid. And basically, you, you go through two lines and you line up. Uh, facing each other, and you throw like a rubber ball, a big rubber ball at each other, and you try to, you try to hit that person, and, and, and basically they would be out, and you have two teams. Well, when we would play it as a kid, everybody would line up against the wall, and there would be two captains, and they would pick people. And you could imagine those that were maybe physically uh, less athletic, right? Diff- not, not truly uh, strengthened <laughs> positions, or you know, people that just had less abilities, put it that way, would naturally get picked last. Well, from God's point of view, God picks those people first. He picks those people that have less ability, right? So Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7, says that God did not choose Israel because they were worthy. He says, the Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Proverbs 17.5 said, He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. Proverbs 19.17, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Proverbs 28.7, Whoever whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Psalm 35.10, All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. 
You see, the, the Lord cares and loves the poor. And so we should too. But notice it says in, in verse 5, it says that God to choose the poor of this world, right? To be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. It's, it's rich, it's, excuse me, it's, it's poor in the eyes of the world. That's a more literal translation. It's the world's evaluation. The world's estimation of lowly people or, or people that are not highly regarded. You think about who the world elevates. Politicians, actresses, actors, right? sports personalities. Right? That's who the world elevates and says, we should be like them. Those that are they're very intelligent. Right? Those are the people. Look, look at those people. Be like them. That's who the world elevates. And anybody, if you're not those things, then you're poor. You, you're lacking in something. Lacking athletic ability, intelligence, riches, status, whatever. See, this is the world's evaluation. And notice that God chose them. This is God's gracious election in salvation. Literally, if you go back to James 1.18, it says, In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. The word brought us forth, again, is, is to be birthed. Speaking about the regeneration of the heart or the, the new birth or being born again. God chose the poor. And, it, and literally... It's an heir's middle for Jordan out there. It's God chose for Himself. God chose the poor of the world for Himself. You see, poverty is ordained. One thing I need to make sure is that, but salvation is not automatic, right? God's chosen believers out from the poor. Doesn't mean all poor are, are universally chosen, universally elect, or universally destined for salvation. There's plenty of poor people that resist Christ. But God's chosen the majority of His people from out of what the world rejects. Because salvation is always, what? By God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. But the key thing, brethren, and this is, this is the kicker, is that you are poor. The way the world looks at you, right? Now, most of us, most people, even in the United States, and most of us here, we would probably consider middle class, generally speaking, but in the world's eyes, we're poor, right? They, the way they look at us, they look at us and say, well, our lives are a waste, right? What are we doing with our lives? Well, when we say, well, we seek to, to glorify God in our lives or, or we train our kids to honor the Lord, they look at that as silly, as foolish. What do you spend your money on? What, really? You, you, you're, you're wise, quote unquote, with your money? You, you use your money for, to help others? Well, why not buy that new car or, or that beach home? See, the world looks at, as believers, as foolish. Remember, it's poor in the world's eyes. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 26. He's reminding these arrogant, these prideful Corinthians of, of where they came from. And, and this applies to the way the world looks at all of us. He says, Therefore, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise, not many According to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised that God has chosen, that the things that are not, so that He might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus." 
who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So brethren, you're poor. We're poor. So when you think about favoritism and, and it's showing it's inconsistent with God's choice, when you show favoritism to somebody because of their externals, because they don't look like you or they're less well off, then, then you're guilty of a sin that God doesn't commit. You're guilty of, of sin, of looking at somebody and elevating yourself as their evil judge. You're looking at somebody the way God doesn't look at them. God loves them. It contradicts his choice. When we look at others and we say, all right, the, or the, uh, to flip it around, and we say, well, the wealthy and the famous, you know, the ones that have power, we, we want to elevate them, we want to be like them, we're contradicting the choice of God. Rather, we're, we're foolish in the world's eyes. They look at us and say, we, we believe a foolish gospel. Really? A guy died and rose from the dead, they would say? We're poor. That's how they esteem us. They look at our lives as a waste. We're foolish for following God's Word and, and living by it and not enjoying the, the fleeting pleasures of this life. When you show partiality or favoritism, you're dishonoring, God, so you're dishonoring those that God honors. And you're not showing love to those who God loves. But what's his goal? So he talked about the poor. He says he's chosen the poor of this world to be heirs of the kingdom which he promised. I'm sorry, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised. So he tells that, first of all, they're rich in faith. We're talking about a, a stark reversal. Remember, the poor, the lowly, they're without means. They're, they're definitely not considered rich in the world's eyes. But, but James says that God has chosen them to be rich in faith. They're trusting God in spite of consequences and circumstances. Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of things unseen. Faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2.8.9 It only comes from a regenerated heart. We believe God is who He says He is and we trust Christ alone for salvation. But they're rich in the, in the sphere of faith. The, the, the spiritual wealth is found through faith alone. Ephesians 1.3 says that all, we have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Jesus Christ. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the strength that He provides. Colossians 1.11 But we also have an increased trust of God's goodness. That's the poor. The poor are rich in faith. They, they trust God. They, they see circumstances for what they are. That They're an opportunity for sanctification. An opportunity for Christ-likeness. An opportunity to trust God more. They look at providence and how things happen in this world. And, and those things in providence, they, they mature them as they trust in Jesus Christ. As they trust God and His goodness. You think about... The widow, the widow's might in Mark chapter 12, it's a great example. Jesus sat and watched people put things into the, the temple treasury. And it says in verse 41 of chapter 12, And he sat down opposite the treasury, and he began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people came in and put in large sums. 
And a poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins, which amounted to one cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned and all she had to live on. What a great example of, of faith. Right? She trusted God that He was going to provide and for her and meet all of her needs. You see, it's the poor that God's chosen to be rich in faith. For those in the world that are rich, do they ever come to the point where they're trusting God for when their next meal is coming from? Or trust God to pay that bill that just seems insurmountable? And that's James's point. They're rich in faith. And not only are they rich in faith, but they're, they're heirs of the kingdom. Heir is someone who, who has a portion or has a, an inheritance. The implication for an heir is they have to know the king. Right? You have to know the king to have an inheritance. And this kingdom is a, it's the future kingdom rule of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus rules now as Lord in our hearts. But one day when He returns and establishes His messianic kingdom, He will rule and reign with His presence from Jerusalem itself. And we will be part of that glorious kingdom, ruling and reigning with Him. But one thing about that heirs of the kingdom or that statement, it, it equates with salvation. Right? He says that you are heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him. If you look over in verse 12, he says that blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, what? which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Remember, the crown of life is synonymous with, with future salvation. The, the kingdom of God here, the heirs of the kingdom, is synonymous with, with, with salvation. It's eternal life. In fact, if you remember what we just read about the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he says, how can I have eternal life? And, and Jesus later on says, what? It's easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They're, they're synonymous. He's talking about our salvation. Right? So you have Jesus' salvation of poor people. And that goal is that, we would be, that they would be heirs. And I love this. He's, it's heirs of the kingdom, and He's promised to those who love Him. You think about the promise. The promise is eternal life. 1 John 2, verse 25, This is the promise which He Himself made to us, eternal life. Think about everybody knows John 3.16. What? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth Him shall not perish, but what? Have eternal life. If you believe, you have eternal life. He's promised that to those who love Him. And you know what? God's faithfulness makes His promises secure. Deuteronomy 6.5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. You see, God, the love of God is, is evidence. It's evidence of eternal life. It's evidence of a, of a changed heart. It's not natural. Men on their own are haters of God. Romans chapter 1. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They're enemies of God. Colossians chapter 2. The, with, with enmity of mind and deed. Brethren, favoritism is inconsistent with God's choice of the poor. 
regardless how the world sees the poor and sees those less often, evaluates them, you must honor them and give them the honor that they deserve. After all, the world looks at you the same way. I love what President Abraham Lincoln, U.S. President, years ago said. He said, God must love the common people because He made so many of them. You see, God chooses the common people predominantly to be recipients of His grace. And think about that. Think about that next time you see someone who's poor, doesn't dress quite as well as you do. Right? Think about that next time you, you're tempted to look down upon someone because of their, their status, their wealth. Right? You look at someone who's not rich, they're not famous. And remember that God honors them. And that God chooses the majority of His people from among the poor, among the less well-off in the world's eyes. If your love is not like Christ's love, then it's inconsistent with your confessed faith in Him. Loving God means loving others and showing them the honor they deserve. So favoritism is inconsistent with God's choice. It dishonors those poor. Well, favoritism is also inconsistent with your new name. Okay, look down at verse 6 and 7. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name of which you have been called? So let's start, let's start backwards and we'll work our way up. Verse 7, do not blaspheme the fair name which you've been called. What, what fair name are they talking about? They're talking about the name Christian. It's the name that's pronounced over these believers at baptism. When you're, when you're baptized into the body of Christ, publicly profess Jesus Christ, you become a Christian. You're, you're given a new name that you never had before. You think about in Antioch, in Acts 11, it says they were, the believers were first called Christians in Antioch. In Acts 5.41, the, the apostles praised God for they were worthy of dishonor for the name. The name what? The name of Christ. You see, when you, when you think about a name, a name signifies ownership. That these believers and anyone who is called a Christian, they belong to Jesus Christ. But it also signifies personal relationship. Colossians 3 says that we're, we're doulos, we're, we're slaves of God. Willingly. And it's also characteristic, right? It's characteristics of believers that they what? They look like Christ. They act like Christ. That's why we're called Christians, because we resemble Christ. And this was a name that, that these believers in the, in the first century, they, they took on willingly. In fact, in 1 Peter 4.16, Peter says, but, but anyone suffers as a Christian... He is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. It's a, and look, it's a noble name. It's a fair name. He says, he says Do these rich people, don't they blaspheme the fair name of which you've been called? It's a noble name. It's, a, it's an honorable name. The name of Christ. And now, James is contrasting that, that noble name, that, dis, that honorable name, with the blasphemy that these rich people are guilty of. You know, we, we have three pregnant ladies, three pregnant couples in our church right now, and they're all trying to figure out names for these babies. They're, they're, they're thinking about these children, and, and when you think about a name, you also think about uh, some of these names have meaning, and will these young kids, when they're born, live up to the name that they've been given? 
Well, Paul says in Colossians 1.10 that he desires that as believers we would live worthy of the Lord, live worthy of our calling, live worthy of our name as Christians. But I want you to look at these rich people, right? They're, they're religiously motivated. Notice he says in verse 7, he says, Do they not bless me, the fair name that you've been called? They slander, they dishonor God in sacred things. And those sacred things are believers, are the Christians. And they do it for the reason of uh, these believers' profession in Christ. Reminds me of the Sadducees and the, and the, and the Pharisees and the, the opposition to Christ when He was alive and then their persecution of believers after His death and resurrection. They were disrespectful. They, they dishonored Christ and dishonored His people. And I love this little side thing. If you think about it, you can only blaspheme God. So James is fully admitting here that Jesus Christ is God. Right? He's saying these believers are, are blaspheming God. They've got this bitter hostility. And this hostility toward Christians establishes that they were, in fact, unbelievers. And he says, not only do they blaspheme, but in verse 6, he says, they, they oppress you. They exploit you. They abuse their power. And that's in the present tense. And it's done over and over and over again. They use immoral and illegal means to defraud. And they, they show little regard for, for human life. And he says, they drag you into courts. They, they pervert legal means. They forcibly haul them into financial and religious courts. They do what's called summary arrest, where in those days, if you were a debtor and a creditor saw you on the street and you hadn't paid your debts, he could, he could literally grab you by the collar and he could drag you over and off to debtor's prison and into courts until you'd paid back what you owed. You can see this. You can see this in... Apostle Paul, before he became a believer in Acts chapter 8, he says in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, after the martyrdom of Stephen, and it said, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen, and they made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women and putting them into prison. It's the same word, dragging them off. You can see the hostility that was directed towards these believers. Look, James reminds these believers that, that favoritism is inconsistent with the name as a Christian. He reminds them of their, their relation with Christ. And, and why are they showing favoritism and partiality to these, these rich people? And he asks these rhetorical questions like, isn't it the rich who's oppressing you? Isn't it the rich who drag you into prison? And isn't the rich who, who dishonor God by blaspheming His name? And yet, you're showing favoritism to the rich. You want to be like the rich. Aren't they the one that, that, that blaspheming God and even their treatment of you? Brethren, don't look down on somebody because he's poor. Don't elevate the rich. And I'm not advocating kind of a, a reverse partiality. Don't get me wrong. Christ wants you to treat everyone the same as souls that need the Lord. Don't elevate the rich. Don't elevate the famous and the powerful. Don't elevate those that have more status in, these, in the world's eyes. It's the rich that that 
by and large, oppose Christ. And I used to hear this over and over when I lived. I'm from North Carolina, which is the home of, of Michael Jordan. Some of you may have heard of him. And we used to hear people say over and over in the state that I live, if only Michael Jordan would come to Jesus, then just think of all the good things he would do. Now, it's up to God if he's going to save Michael Jordan or not. But it's not about what he, God can do with Michael Jordan, but it's about what God can do with you. And by the way, I, I did read that Michael Jordan had a warehouse, that he had thousands and thousands of Bibles in this warehouse that, that people would send him. And now he would take them and he would give them away, give them, give them back to the Gideons and give them to other people. But, but over and over, people had this mentality of, if only this rich person could be saved, only this prominent person could be saved, then, then Christ would be elevated and exalted. Well, God doesn't need the richest help to do that. He has you who may be poor in this world's eyes. Brethren, don't treat anyone any better than you would treat anybody else. God loves the poor, and He wants you to to not look down on them. Look, it's it's human nature. It's human nature to discriminate. It's human nature to show favoritism. We see it every day. You see it in societies. You see it in nations. You see it in our world. It reminded me of a story I heard in, in 1968. A movie came out called Planet of the Apes. And there were many actors and actresses, and, and that they did, they, they had them dress up in prosthetics and makeup, and, and there were basically there were talking gorillas and chimpanzees and orangutans, and, and they all had this, this, this wonderful makeup, and it looked very good. What was interesting is, they, is the, the crew members on the set, and even Charlton Heston mentioned this, that the different groups would self-segregate. At one table, you'd have the orangutans. At one table, you'd have the gorillas. At one table, you'd have the chimpanzees. And they weren't segregating based on their own individual ethnicity. They were self-segregating based on the costumes they wore. No one told them to do that. You see, it's built in our nature to to segregate, to to divide. It's the natural heart of man. And, And you look down on others that aren't in your particular group or clique. And you show partiality. And favoritism. But partiality and favoritism is a big deal to God. It's sin and it's inconsistent with God's choice of the poor. And it's inconsistent with your new name. When you look at the world and you look at those that are famous and you esteem them because of externals, it's sin. And you look at others for what they can do for you, how they can advance you individually and personally, it's sin. You should look at others the way Christ looked at them. As a needy soul that needs to hear the gospel, the good news. Looking down on the poor in the world's eyes, is, it's not the way God looks at them. And James asked these three rhetorical questions. He says, does not God chose the poor? Are not the rich are the ones oppressing you? Are not the rich are the ones that blasphemy Jesus Christ? And the answer is Yes. How absurd it is for these believers, and this is kind of James's point in one sense, how absurd is it that you are, you're elevating the rich and, and look at what they're doing to you and doing to other believers in the world. You see, favoritism is inconsistent the way God loves the poor. Impartiality is inconsistent with your new name. Brethren, you are Christ and everything you do and say should remember Jesus Christ and bring honor to His name. 
impartiality shows true salvation, a true change to regenerate hearts. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the great equalizer. Brethren, we are all equal. We all have a new identity in Christ. And just remember that for poor, for rich, for famous, for wealthy, it doesn't matter. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just thank you for your word. Father, we, we thank you for the confrontation that is the book of James in our own hearts with the fact that we show partiality at times. Father, we're guilty of looking at others and thinking about what they can do for us. We're guilty of looking at others and thinking that we're better than they are at times. Father, we're guilty of looking down on the poor. We're guilty of elevating the rich and those that have status or fame. Father, help us to not sow division in the church, but to treat each and every one of your your body as those who are loved by you with the honor that they deserve. Father, help us to love others, to demonstrate our love for you by how we treat others with a Christ-like love. Help our faith not to be just mere words, but to be demonstrated in our actions. Help us to remember that those we run into we not to look at them and evaluate them the way the world does, but look at them as, as needy souls who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Pray for boldness in that area in our lives, that we would tell others of the hope that lies within our hearts. Father, forgive us of our sin and help us to, to walk renewed in your grace and to, to live lives that are impartial, to truly demonstrate our love. We thank you again for this time. Give glory and praise to you, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.